My name is Ian Boswell. I was a world tour professional cyclist for seven years. Skyrider from the USA is a fighter. Well, Ian Boswell is turning up the cranks. Also, the host of this fine podcast, Breakfast with Boz, being served by Wahoo. Breakfast with Boz podcast dives into the world of endurance sports, whether it's cycling, multi-sport, running, anything that inspires us to get out and move, we cover right here on Breakfast with Boz. Let's get cooking on Breakfast with Boz. Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I'm your host, Ian Boswell, back home and in the kitchen with my wife, Gretchen. And we have quite a colorful breakfast this morning. We have a little mandolin, which sounds like maybe the wrong name, but a little thin slicer that we took to some small purple potatoes, fried those up in some oil and olive oil, put some rosemary, some herb butter in there, and accompanying that, we have some very yellow eggs from our chickens. They have not been laying quite as many eggs recently, but still enough for our personal use. Some spinach from the garden, some toast from some friends who stopped by, and some homemade strawberry jam. Gretchen, this is quite the colorful plate, almost like a, a rainbow with all the colors on there. What are you most excited for of the, the items on your plate? Oh, wow. That's a great question. I'm excited for these potatoes, mostly because whenever we make potatoes, we really love potatoes, but we don't always think to make them. So I also really love the herb butter because it's very fresh and springy. When I see you brought out ketchup to the table, I assume that's not for you, probably thinking of uh, how I utilize ketchup on, on many things, especially eggs and potatoes. Are you going to put any ketchup on there? I'll put some ketchup on my potatoes, yeah. Alrighty, well, we're going to get stuck into this colorful breakfast, and you are about to hear another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. In the episode today, I am joined by professional runner Jim Wamsley, who recently took his third win at the Western States 100, which is a 100-mile running race in the hills of the Sierra Nevadas. I've only been turned on to Jim and his sporting exploits recently, but ever since, I have been fascinated and blown away by how darn fast these ultra runners are taking on technical and challenging 100-mile running races. It blows my mind, so I wanted to ask Jim about his training, nutrition, pacing, and also how he uses cycling as some crossover training when he just needs to spin out his legs, stay fit, but not necessarily go thrash himself on the trails of his home out in Flagstaff, Arizona. So let's dive into this week's conversation, and my guest this week. Jim Wamsley. Give this guy a follow. What he is doing on the trails is absolutely mind-boggling. So without further ado, let's jump into my conversation with Jim. Well, Jim Wamsley, a few days off of winning your third Western States 100. First off, how are you feeling? Feeling pretty good. And I say like every race kind of has its own individual recovery plan to it. And all that kind of depends on how the day went, how deep you dug and kind of luck, I guess, in a lot of ways. Yeah, the legs are feeling good and I'm back home in Flagstaff, Arizona. So trying to get organized a bit for a couple trips coming up. Well, we can get into into what's coming up, but I guess let's go start off by going way back. I mean, running is a sport that I have done very little of. And then looking at, you know, at you and what you're doing in these, you know, 
ultra runs and the times that you're doing, you know, what is your history with, with running? How'd you get into it? You know, what do you love so much about, especially these long events? Cause it wasn't that long ago that a marathon was a long run for, you know, most people. And now it's a marathon's not that long anymore when you're doing a hundred miles. So what's your yeah. history with running? So I grew up in Phoenix, Arizona, grew up playing soccer when I was little all the way to freshman, sophomore year of high school, where I started overlapping and one of my best friends in soccer, his parents really encouraged him to do cross country and track. And so he just kind of talked me into doing it. Um, I was probably one of the better just runners on this soccer team. So grew up basically joining track and cross country, uh, started doing workouts and stuff at freshman year of high school. And then everything went pretty well in high school, all things considered, like made a footlocker nationals, uh, won some bigger meets and some state titles kind of grown up in high school and got to go to college and run in the NCA where I continued to run cross country. And then indoor track was brand new for me, um, which was a lot of fun of like the same thing, but a little different. And then uh, outdoor track. And I ran all four years at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And that was a lot of fun. But more or less, that kind of became also an endpoint in my running career. I think uh, I'm jealous of cycling and the fact that it seems a lot more developmental and maybe more patience. If you don't, well, two things that were at play. One, if you don't catch uh, kind of like a pro contract out of college, there's not much of a net to d still develop basically 22 year olds to 26 kind of thing. And so you just kind of lots of really good talent just ends up joining the work field and doing this or that after running and moving on at a very young age. And for me, that was going into the Air Force where I was first stationed in Central Coast, California, learning how to do missiles. Uh, so yeah. And then I got stationed in Montana where I was actually in the missile silos for a couple of years. But then Montana, I'd say out of college, like my first kind of choices were going to big cities, LA, Boston were my first two choices. And I was supposed to do acquisitions. And then like two weeks before graduation, got voluntold that, that I was going to be doing missiles instead for my first tour that I was going to go to Montana. And I just had never even thought about that as a possibility. And everything kind of got flipped upside down a bit with that. But in full circle, Montana was just one of the best experiences ever. And really, even the struggles I had there with just my Air Force career really helped me kind of identify passions that I liked and I enjoyed and the outdoors up in Montana just and then even with the type of running that they do. So trying to be just kind of a fit post-collegiate runner, trying to figure out like, I like running, but what do I do now? They don't have much of a, they have zero track scene. Then they have a not much road scene, but they have all these beautiful trail races that they run in Montana. And uh, that was kind of the beginning seed of discovering trail running and then eventually ultra trail running. When I got out of the Air Force Academy or the Air Force in Montana, that's kind of a pivot point in my life that I chose to just take some time to do stuff that makes me happy. And that ended up being ultra trail running and just trying to figure it out. And so that was in about 2015, 16. Well, that is interesting. I mean, and every sport has its own own issues. But, you know, when I think about, you know, my wife's brother played college football and I was like, we went to a senior game and I was like, 
that's the last game of tackle football he'll ever play, which is crazy. You know, yeah. you've spent your whole life working up to this. And, you know, I know in cycling and I guess running in the same way, like it's a lifelong sport. You can continue running after you've ended your kind of racing career. But I guess I'd never really thought about that. You go to NCAAs and you run there, but if you don't get a contract, where do you go from, from there? And that's, uh, you know, it's interesting to see where you're at now at the the pinnacle of ultra running and the fact that you came out of college and like, well, I don't know, I don't know what I'm going to do. I mean, how did you identify that, you know, cause events on the track are very different than what you're doing now. How did you figure out that you were really built and, and meant for these ultra races? Just gradually getting into trails. So my first trail race was only 12 K and uh, there was a 30 K option and like I, I won the 12K, I'm, I was pretty quick and still fit from college. I mean, I was maybe 22, 23 at this time, still in Montana. Just jokingly telling people like, oh, no, I, 30K is too far for me. Like, I, I don't really care to go further. But there was a lack of understanding within trail running, maybe priority, like priority of distances. And coming from the track, it's like, if, if you can compete shorter because you're quick enough, typically that's going to be what you do and it gets more competitive. And at some point, like you're not the fastest hundred meter sprinter. (laughs) It'd be nice to have a 10 second race, but that's just never, ever going to be the case for me. Um, I kind of jokingly say, but obviously the endurance side of it, it, it's maybe more fun to be a miler than a 10 K guy on the track doing 25 laps on a track. But in trail, it's opposite. Like it kind of just all builds up and the hundred mile, 160 K distance is really the pinnacle of where I guess the competition comes together in the spotlight. So then realizing that there was a bit of a build of like, well, I guess I'm going to do a hundred and which one do I do? And basically it's like, I'm going to do Western States because that one's the biggest, baddest one in North America. And I would say at the time, like I didn't have perspective or dreams to like race abroad quite as much or let alone the funding. Um, so, uh, Western States was in California. Um, it seems very reachable from whether it's Montana or I moved back to Arizona after Montana. So driving to California is not too big of a deal. Um, very realistic for a West Coast American. Well, and what about the growth of ultra running over the last few years? I mean, in, in ways, I kind of feel like it does have a lot of similarities to kind of this boom of gravel cycling in the U.S. where yeah. you know, athletes aren't necessarily part of teams. They're kind of doing it on their own. And you have this huge mix of professional athletes and athletes that are focused on performance, but also very much a participatory side of the event where people are just there to finish. And I guess in a way, yeah. I mean, the times that you're doing it, what was it 14 hours and something, something for Western yeah, States? Yeah, yeah which is crazy. And I guess it's similar to, I feel like an event like Unbound, where it's like just on the cusp of being, you know, like ultra, ultra, which is like, you know, you you start start to slow down. It's more about survival, but you're the speeds that you're still doing for a hundred miles. I mean, it's still incredible. I mean, do you feel like ultra running has found this perfect distance where it's still fast, but physically challenging, you know, cause you go to the next, you go to 200 miles and then it's like speed walking. Yeah. Well, Maybe. I don't know. Right now, I, I would say they're 200-mile running races, but it's maybe not drawing people that are trying to run it. Or can you run it? I, I would say there's more questions. There's definitely a lot less running or slower running. There are tons of parallels between gravel riding and 
ultra trail stuff. But one of the biggest things is probably cycling has, it's defined so many more disciplines between trails, roads, everything, where kind of what I get lumped into could be anything from downhill mountain biking, World Cup mountain biking, cyclocross, Unbound 200 to ultra, ultra cycling. So I'll, I'll do short uphill races still on trails. The trails that I sometimes go on, like it's not faster to bike. I, I kind of wonder because there's a big difference between pro cyclists and 90, 95% of the rest of the cyclists of how much you guys can ride so fast on. I kind of say usually almost all the time, uh, a bike with a pro cyclist on it that can handle it well enough, like uphill, downhill can beat me running on a trail, but there are trails technical enough of like, there's, I just kind of say maybe there's no way, or if it gets very bouldery where a bike's just, you're going to have to hike a bike maybe. Cause I think about it. I, I like cycling a lot and it's a lot of fun to draw some comparisons, but I would say running almost lacks a lot of the definitions to put, I guess, me in a box or other athletes that do what I do um, into a box quite as much. So we're doing all sorts of stuff and it's exciting, but it's also pretty challenging. And I don't think it's always appreciated enough of the diversity of what we're trying to do. Well, maybe we should set up a challenge. If you find a, a technical climb somewhere around Flagstaff, I can come out with my bike and you can run up it and we can do a do a little race. That'd be awesome. I don't think you can bike up it. Yeah. Like, yeah. like, like we're talking 50% inclines of just, I, I'm not sure maybe you'd have some crazy gearing on it, but then it's also slick, loose, marbly dirt. And I, I'm just not sure, like, I've never seen anyone ride up. People ride down it and people go, this is crazy that people ride down it, but to ride up something like, like, can cyclists ride up downhill mountain bike courses? Um, probably slower than you would run, definitely. <laughs> you know, it's just because it's, <laughs> I think the grade goes steep enough that then your gear becomes so small that, you know, Essentially, if you were you're running your stride, yeah, yeah, your stride would be so small. And just the balance is so difficult at like the slow speeds, but you also would be putting out like pretty good watts probably. Yeah. Well, we'll put that um, idea on hold for now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But if you combine it with uphill, downhill, it gets much more interesting. Yeah. Um, where if the runner can get them on the uphill part of it, but then you know the bike's going to rip down. So yeah, there's lots of uh, different routes like that. Well, and, and speaking of cycling, you do spend a fair bit of time cross-training on the bike, and I know you follow the sport closely. I mean, how much does does that fitness cross over? Because I know that cycling is a great way to train for running, but running is not necessarily a great way to train for cycling just because it's so, it's so damaging to your muscles. Do you still ride a fair few times a week? I get through like periods of riding. I don't have running beats me up like energy and body wise so much that I wish I had more energy to ride more. If I had unlimited energy and everything, like I would be doing both full, full throttle all day and just not have any time for anything else. Um, however, that's not the case. So usually when I'm healthy and I'm running probably at least a uh, hundred 10 or more miles a week. That's probably a hundred miles a week. I can maybe balance some probably two rides a week, but when I'm getting in the thick of training blocks, uh, if I'm healthy, um, I'll be running. And then when I'm backing off, I'll hop on the kicker bike today. Um, and probably do like a 
I like the climbing because the climbing is almost most similar to running. It's like uh, I'm more used to not having a break. Yeah, and that more upright. Yeah, so I like doing altitude with, but I've never done altitude with at sea level though, so I'm really interested in that. True. I bet your your actual watts per kilogram are probably pretty high. Just being a you know being a lean runner and being able to produce that power, especially standing, is kind of your cup of tea. Yeah, it's kind of when you get out of the saddle, it feels normal and fine. Whereas I think cyclists maybe find that more tiring. But I try to stay in the saddle as much as possible. (laughs) Well, you'd mentioned doing a 110 mile week. I mean, how many hours does that correlate to? It all depends. So like this year, I started in January, I did a road 100k. And I did, man, maybe 140 mile weeks, but that might take 15, 16 hours. And then my next training block, I might only do 120 miles, but it might take 25, 30 hours. So the terrain's going to change a lot. Western States, I got to maybe four weeks over 20 hours, but below 25 hours. So 20 to 25 hours was kind of my big volume for Western States, but I was also dealing with a little bit of a... IT band problem. So my routes were a bit slower because that just seemed to work. Whereas if I hit a flat road or a rolling road, those will be way faster time-wise than going out and just hitting a gnarly up-down trail and stuff. So it can vary a lot in, in really big volume blocks. When has the training in ultra running changed in recent years, just with more people, I guess, you know, kind of getting into the sport, has the philosophy around what the best way to prepare, has that has that changed and evolved? And, and are you kind of at the at the front of that change that's happening? So I guess there's a lot of things at play. First and foremost, I think it's not, it's hard to scientifically define like the best way to train for an ultra. I think it's very much unknown. And I think people react differently enough that it's hard to train everyone through the same system that way. I coach myself and um, I kind of, I don't coach other people. And I kind of say, I it would be very difficult for me to coach someone else just because a lot of it's so much off of feel. And when, when it's pushing too hard and when it's not pushing too hard, I kind of have an honest feedback with myself about that. Whereas I know in growing up when I had coaches in high school or college, um, it's always thumbs up, let's go. And before I know it, I'm just overtrained and drained for some of the big races, which is pretty frustrating. So the training philosophy, I, I don't know. So like gravel, how yourself and other tour riders approach than what had been there 20 years ago, or um, there could that ran in college or women like myself that ran in college and kind of the ultra, but um, depends on the race because it can... The, the grind and people that love to suffer um, shine just as much as anyone that's hitting the crazy, ridiculous threshold workout. Yeah. I mean, and it does fascinate me just to see, again, the, the speeds in which you're running. Yeah. I mean, and how much do you think, and that's one thing in, in cycling, and you're well aware of it, that equipment has changed the speed of races dramatically, you know, with more aero bikes and clothing and helmets and, you know, tires you know, how much do you think, and I know there's been a lot of debate recently around, you know, the shoes that are used. I mean, that's yeah. one of the things that I find so beautiful about running is that equipment it were up until recently wasn't really a factor. You know, do you think that there's still more to be done when it looks at, you know, shoes and kind of the technology and that to make the human faster? Or I mean, is that one of the things you love most about running is the simplistic, you know, the simplistic beauty of it, just like human performance at its purest form? Yeah, I do like the simplistic side of it. I think trail running, the shoes are means so much. I would say the responsiveness and how they're working on the road 
it doesn't translate the same way to the trails. And if, if they do, I guess it's a not a great trail. Like if you just a gravel ultra trail run, because if, if I were to run Unbound 200, it would still be a trail race, but by all means, it's a gravel road. So, but it still falls under trail. So it's a little weird. That's where a road shoe would probably do just fine and probably better. But if the trail gets technical enough, your road shoe, you might as well throw in the trash because, or just it's, it's not going to help you anything. So I like that it hasn't exciting to see people run fast. I, I also think I like the storyline of bike races better about people winning the day, winning the stage, winning the event, as opposed to chasing a world record. Um, I think chasing world records are boring in the fact that not many people in the race have an opportunity, like a chance at that. And this story all falls apart if someone fall, if the runners fall off of pace and stuff. And I think I really like how much cycling puts into champions of a monument race or a stage win sort of thing, rather than uh, is this the fastest pace that the Tour de France has ever been on this stage? And it's like, probably not. And or like, there's a couple climbs on this one. Like, there's no way. And it's like, oh, well, it's two miles an hour slower than the fastest pace ever. I'm just going to turn it off. Like, it's not like that at all. And um, chasing the wins, I think, is exciting that way. Yeah, well, we've seen this in the tour this year, just with how emotional people's you know individual stage victories are, which is so cool to see. I mean, do you think that's also a nature of trail running or ultra running being a relatively new sport and the fact that, you know, the competition's high, but it's like, as more people do it, as more people kind of figure it out, it would be crazy to have a sprint finish at the end of Western States 100. But do you foresee that happening in the future where like, you know, there's so many people at the front end that it's, it does become that competitive, which ultimately pushes all the athletes to, you know, to work harder and focus more on the details. It's interesting because I think biggest difference is drafting is not as big of a deal in running. Um, Aerodynamics don't come into play. And even less so in ultra running because it's just that much slower. And I think ultra running's got to be less than ten percent or or more of aerodynamic effects. It's just not much difference between running behind someone or ahead. But some people feed off of the competitive aspect of being in a pack and and like one break and this and that. But running favors a lot of front running a lot more. And I would say myself and a lot of individuals also feed off of front running and the kind of the confidence that you're building with it. It's a little different. And and you can basically, the best runners in the world can almost time trial away from the front rather than like from a whole pack. Um, a pack isn't str- necessarily stronger than an individual in running. So it's, it's interesting in that aspect. Like most of my Western states or all of my Western states wins have started from earlier attacks, I guess you could say. And it's not like sitting in the group can like saves you energy. If you feel an opportunity it's, and you're okay running by yourself, I guess, mentally aspect and boredom, <laughs> it's yeah, it's, go for it. So it's a bit different in that way, I guess. Well, and, and what are you thinking about out there? I mean, when you are by yourself oh, for you know, 10 hours. I mean, what's going through your head? Is it, is it, you just focus? I mean, I guess it's technical enough in places that you're focusing on just your, your footing. Well, we call California, California carpet. So, uh, it's not too, too technical there, but thinking about it, I was, so Western States this year was kind of the first big race in our sport since uh, COVID hit and to come back and to feel 
normal-ish. So it was amazing. And I wasn't necessarily supposed to be back at the race. I had plans to go to South Africa to do a road ultra um, that they do uh, called Comrades. But um, I had plans to do it in 2020 and 2021, but it got canceled last year, pretty last minute. Same with the whole season, basically. And then this year they canceled it pretty early. So that gave me enough time to pivot to look at Western State. So just being back on a familiar course that I have kind of fond feelings of, it was great to see like the familiar spots and aid stations and creeks and people. And yeah, it's, uh, I've gone, I, I've ran it the last five Western States. So it feels like a family event at this point for me, which is just really nice. And I guess that keeps me pretty entertained while I'm running. We have aid stations almost every five miles. So you run out of water pretty quick when it's over 110. <laughs> and running's a lot harder to carry water than I guess on the frame of your bike in that aspect. Yeah, yeah, def- definitely. A bike helps also for coasting, which you don't have the luxury in, <laughs> no. in running of coasting. When you are off the front of a race like Western States, and I'm sure you're getting time splits of, of what your gap is, uh, what is your, not your strategy? Oh, there's no time splits. It's all extreme. It might be a 20 mile delay. I'll get at maybe 60, a reliable split from my crew, 80, and then 96 is kind of the most reliable splits I'll get from my crew. Other than that, it's all, it's not much. Um, you just know they're behind you and you can't see them. And other than that, find your, find your rhythm. There's no cell service. It's in it runs back and forth through these canyons. It crisscrosses this canyon. So communicating is extremely hard. Broadcasting is extremely hard. It's remote, it's hot, and it beats you up like that. So when you are off the front and you don't know how far the people are behind you, what is your pacing strategy? Because on a bike, you have a power meter, you have heart rate monitor, you have speed. You know, are you going solely off of feel or are you looking at, okay, this, I'm running this pace and I kind of know the terrain. This is the, the pace I should be running at. Or is it completely just off feel. I mean, I don't want to give away your secrets, but um, are, you, are you just basing it off of how how you feel? I mean, I guess everything changes the temperature, the the slope, yeah. you know, the terrain. I guess compared to cycling, it's it's almost just hilarious because yeah, it's, it's pretty much effort-based. And I had, I have these note cards. I know a lot of my splits on this course because I'm pretty familiar with it, but then brand new courses or races and stuff are going to have to be a little bit of a grain of salt. If I can find some data on races and I can get splits from aid stations and I can be in the ballpark of what pace I need to be, but it's still effort-based because, uh, and you always got to think like it's going to get harder. The wall's going to come, the the low moments are going to come and you need to save enough energy to be able to get through those points. So it's an all day pace, my guess, which is a little boring to some, but at the same time, it's still a pretty good clip. I mean, miles, like after 50K, there's maybe a 20K stretch that's mostly downhill. And that's around like six low pace, six minutes per mile running. um, And it's just sloped downhill for a while. So to throw that in the middle of a hundred mile with still the kind of the saying at Western States is the race doesn't start till Forest Hill because basically you find out how many matches you have left at that point. And if you've burned too many just to get through the the bigger early climbs, you're going to fall apart. <laughs> so uh, yeah, yeah the, the pacing's mostly feel and effort based, I would say, um, which is completely different than I ran a 100K road race in January for time and record and where I missed a world record by like 
I think 14, 11 or 14 seconds, um, like ran six hours only to miss it by a few seconds. That's completely oh, calculated and everything's like holding back. And if I were to do it again, I'd go maybe only one minute faster the first 50K. And I think that would definitely be enough. But once you get on the trails, it and especially with weather, as I think you're, you're experiencing with Unbound 200, it's not just the race and this and that. And year to year, the weather can be hotter or colder, more rainy or something or muddy. And all of that plays a factor into, yeah, your splits aren't necessarily just completely comparable. And then a bike, I would say, also simplifies the mechanics of human movement in a lot of ways in that everything's more rigid and off of pivot points. And it's uh, almost comparing, in my opinion, uh, just the pure aerobic side of humans more where I think running has so much more inefficiencies to it that there's so many more movements and weird not efficient things and loss of power in a runner that's hard to calculate and is completely different for almost every individual. So it's very difficult to just scientifically approach a trail race in that aspect other than effort. Well, yeah, I mean, and speaking about, you know, the, the, just the, the physical effort that goes into it. I mean, how much does something like your nutrition plan come into play? I mean, as you said, it's much harder to carry, you know, it's great in a bicycle that you can have essentially the bike carries your weight and, yeah. you know, and not necessarily you, but you know, how much are you eating during these, you know, hundred mile races? Because yeah. in 14 hours, you're going to be burning a lot of calories and especially in the heat, you know, with, you know, hydration, are you going, you know, again, you don't have to share any secrets, but you know, what are you, what are you consuming and like, in what quantities is it, are you trying to replenish as much as, as possible? Or I know running's also harder on the gut. It's not like a bike where yeah. you can kind of eat anything and not not worry about it coming up. Yeah, the the biggest difference will be um, the GI issues that you get with jostling around with your stomach compared to a bike is much smoother. Like the best thing about a bike is I can eat lunch and then just go knock out some miles and it's not a big deal. Running, that is not the case at all. Uh, You kind of have to dictate your run or your meals based off of each other a little bit um, so that those don't conflict or you have to kind of teach your body to deal with it a little more if you have some funny work schedule. And also I'd say trail ultra is almost, it's bleeding over into pro track and other things. And the fact that it's extremely transparent for the most part, it's not much of a secret what I do. And in podcasts like this, like I literally like, yeah, I try to take a, I think my plan was about 380 calories an hour and it was liquid based. So it was all in bottles and electrolyte mixes. So, and that's what most other people are going to do. And for the most part, I was able to do that through 55 miles. And I would say temperatures started going up more. The day started carrying on and maybe I was a little ahead on calories. And that kind of sometimes causes a swinging with your stomach and with your energy a bit. So it became a lot of management from there of getting in what I could. And I would say the last 40 miles was not good calorically because my stomach was more touch and go. And there was no puking all day, which was great. But there were, I mean, sometimes it felt bad enough that it's like, I don't know. I just don't want to get to the puking point because uh, usually things can go south from there. But I was really interested in asking you about your unbound 200 you said you ate like 580 calories an hour it was a lot yeah that's insane and and did you feel like you just had a bloated full stomach for that or like because i don't think the body can process that much can it it probably can't 
Well, I think it's what usually 60 to 90 grams of carbohydrates per hour is what, you know, the average body can can process. And I guess the key thing, and it's probably the same with running, is making sure that you have enough, especially if you're eating solid foods or even, you know, something like a gel, making sure you have enough liquid in your stomach to actually be able to digest it. I mean, that's probably one of the biggest issues with, you know, people eating solid foods is they can't, they don't drink enough water or fluid to actually, you know, they're starting to draw water into their stomach rather than... yeah you know, have it be, you know, circulating their, in their bloodstream. But yeah, I ate so much food. It was, it was kind of crazy, you know, cause normally I'll go out for a training ride and I'll have, you know, one or two bars and usually just like a salt mix in the bottle. But, you know, that's probably one of the biggest things that I thought about running into Unbound was just like the gut, training your gut as much as training your body, you know, cause it's, you know, very similar to, Western states, you're not going to go run a hundred miles to like practice. You're not going to go do a 200 mile training ride because it's just, it's too much, but doing a few like 50 or sorry, hundred mile rides, but like practicing that fueling strategy of like teaching your body how to take in that, that many calories. Because if you never do it in training and then all of a sudden you go to a race and you're trying to take down all this food, you know, you can get GI distress. So doing it, you know, it was a, it was a mix of, you know, some picky bars and I had some, I guess you use Morton, right? In your bottles? Yeah. Yeah. So I use, I mean, there's a beta fuel science and sport makes a similar thing, but I do love Morton. I use that on Katusha and it's, that's kind of, it got me hooked on like making sure that you're such an easy way to get down calories. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's a, it's a crazy thing when you look back on how much I ate. Cause you know, it's like, pretty much two weeks supply of training food and and one, and one, one race. I have an entire box full of nutrition, not to mention just kind of the backup nutrition that I, I tend to try to pack. Like I say in ultra, like just going into these, you need so many redundant plans because plan A is great. And you, you cross your fingers for plan A, but uh, generally plan B, C and D come out as well. And you probably need to go a couple more. And I think I'm always adding a few layers of redundancy to especially the nutrition plan. Yeah. I mean, and it's just a, you know, for me, it's also having a variety of flavors, you know, something that might sound good at 6am in the morning. is not going to sound good at four o'clock in the afternoon when it's been sitting in your pocket for you know, an entire day and it's all melted. So, so thinking about that as well and what you're actually going to want to eat and having those options is, is important. Yeah. Well, what's coming up for the rest of the year? I know you're back in Flagstaff. I'm sure your body is still recovering, but what's, what's Jim up to for the rest of the summer? Yeah. So this will be my third try at doing this turnaround and it hasn't really worked out too well. And most people recommend against the Western States uh, Ultra Trail Mount Blanc turnaround. But um, in, oh man, it's going to be closer to seven weeks now. Uh, At the end of this week, it'll be seven weeks out, I think. But this week's very easy. I got a little travel east I got to do this weekend, quick trip. But then I'll be going out to Colorado to train in the San Juans. And pretty cool. I kind of just, I got like a rooftop tent on my car and I just go camp for the next month, train around the trailheads in the mountains and getting some really long days on feet, but the intensity be a lot lower and I'll be preparing to run Ultra Trail Mount Blanc or UTMB, um, which is starts and finishes in Chamonix, France, and it circumnavigates Mount Blanc and it goes through Italy, Switzerland, and back to France. And it's got about 10,000 meters of up and down. And that one takes a few more hours than Western States. <laughs> uh, similar distance. Wow. But uh, I think I've ran 20 hours there before. Um, but I haven't pulled off uh, a win yet would be the ultimate goal. But I would say that one's internationally more 
competitive domestically in the U.S. There's nothing that comes close to Western states. And then we typically attract a few very elite international athletes for Western states as well. Uh, For example, Beth Pascal was the women's Western states winner this year, and she's from the UK. But then second and third were also international females. I think there was another one or two in the top 10 for the female side. But then on the men's side, there weren't really any of the elite men that decided they could defer their, their race to next year. So I think all the men deferred their Western states runs to next year. So it was mostly a domestic race or championship for the U.S. there. But going to Europe, I mean, kind of similar to maybe how you guys experience racing in Europe. Uh, It's a different ball game. I think they add more technical things to it. There's required gear that we have to carry. So a lot of times in the U.S., we have fast enough races or enough aid stations that we can do a bottle and a belt and kind of carry a lot of our snacks that way. Over there, you got to carry like rain jacket, rain pants, wind jacket, mid-layer, two lights, all this stuff that kind of starts adding up and you got to start weighing everything on a little coffee scale and snipping tags off of clothes that you're going to be racing in just to cut a couple grams here or there. So that's definitely more of a gram counting one. And then in addition, it starts at 6 p.m. as opposed to Western States starts at 5 a.m. So Western States, I never, on a good day, uh, I've, I've had to, <laughs> but on a good day, I never use a headlight and it's almost the longest day of the year um, being in June, whereas uh, UTMB is the end of August and you start at 6 p.m. So everybody goes through at least one night. And like uh, gravel racing, there's more than just the elite field. Um, There's all sorts of everyone looking for an adventure, the kind of just process of finding yourself out there. People sometimes have two nights at that one. And (laughs) that's hard to comprehend sometimes when uh, I guess at that point, a lot of elites throw in the towel and it's just like, this is not the day I'm looking for. So it's a different experience at that point. Yeah, it's pretty cool that it's a top to bottom sport. Um, You can find ultra trail running at any point in your life. I, I know people that First time they won Western States was at, I think, 36 or 37 years old. So it's not necessarily just a young and spry thing. I think uh, most people come to it after either a career of track or this or that, or wanting to just go see things and do things. They just start running around their area and getting on some trails. And then just like I did in Montana, like this thing leads to that and that. And all of a sudden you learn about this world of ultra trail running and uh it's pretty amazing and adventurous and the places you go and it's exciting yeah well that kind of brings up my last question which is i mean what is the the mindset of an elite ultra runner because you know, <laughs> when you look at when you look at these gravel events you know there is this sense of like you know what i'm here to perform but if you don't perform it's like okay i'm just going to ride in with with the masses but you're on a bike so you're you know you can coast yeah. and you can you know draft and you said some some of the elite athletes at you know, at Mont Blanc, you know, throwing the towel, is there still a culture of like, Hey, you know what? I'm not on a great day, but I'm still just going to finish. Or is it, is it become where it's highly competitive? It's like, Hey, I'm not going to win. I'm in 15th place. I'm just yeah. going to, you know, bail. How does that, you know, what is that mindset currently for, you know, for you and your competitors? I would say culturally, there's the pressure to finish to do the race and complete it. However, when it becomes a job, sometimes we're running when we don't have wheels to begin with, but when they do fall off, they, like there's no moving the moving it any further. The amount of like just how slow. I mean, yeah, so I've dropped maybe 3 about 3 races in the last 6 years. But you can find yourself 
in a really difficult spot and uh, yeah, sometimes not even safe to push through it. Especially I think the way myself and other elites are running at the front, we're definitely trying to flirt with that red line. And a lot of times we go well past that. And when you're bonking, there's and your stomach goes especially, I think the number one dropout reason in ultras is uh, stomach GI issues. When you yeah, when you can't keep anything down and you can't even like there's just no energy you get nauseous you get dizzy sometimes you just kind of need to make that call not let alone like how detrimental like blisters or um, all sorts of other things could potentially be but try not to make excuses and find the line i think is uh still the consensus if if possible yeah well i guess yeah injury is a big reality of, of running that oftentimes if you if you bonk in cycling and keep going you're probably not going to end up with tendonitis but in cycling or in running that can that can happen more more regularly so that's very understood yeah so it's uh it's interesting it's similar it's it's fun to see some similarities, but still very different. And um, but the gravel world seems exciting, and I guess also without team, pers- like not the teams that you see in the tours and and stuff. It's exciting, yeah. And then more relaxed. You have a beer afterwards, or even before. Uh, it's not necessarily a big <laughs> deal. Yeah, yeah. I'd say the marginal gains aren't really that important when it just kind of comes down to being tough on race day and grinding and like almost the mentality of, oh, this isn't going to matter, I think is almost a benefit in a lot of ways that you feel bulletproof and that bulletproof kind of makes you tougher on race day um, because it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter. Let's keep going. And so you just finally get like complete forward movement and uh, yeah, that's how the finish line gets closer, I guess. Yeah. Well, I would uh, love to to welcome you to gravel racing when you're ready. I don't know if I will ever do an ultra running race. And it's funny, and I've thought about this parallel between both of us, you know, being at a high level of our sport, but I just can't fathom doing what you do. And I'm sure that it's much easier for you to think about a 200 mile bike ride rather than me thinking about a hundred mile run. I mean, that just seems so much further away from reality yeah. and just the, the time it would take to be able to run that far. It's uh yeah, it's very impressive what you do and uh, yeah, definitely, definitely keep it up. Cause it's, it is very inspiring. I think not just for people in the running world, but maybe more so people outside of it. Cause it's, it's just so mind boggling to run a hundred miles at the pace you run at. I, I could maybe do a 5k with you at your hundred mile pace. No, no, I'm sure. Uh, it's interesting. I think, um, what was his name on Ineos? Really oh, uh, Pidcock, um, Pidcock. Yeah. Pidcock. Yeah. Tom Pidcock. He like posted a 5k <laughs> video thing, which was just hilarious from a runner perspective, from like someone that knows what they're looking at of like, dude, this guy was jogging. And like, he claimed his GPS went all wonky. Um, cause he was doing loops on a park and, uh, said he did like a 13, 25 K and it's like, <laughs> just from the clip he showed, it's like, dude, you're not doing 15 minutes, man. Like, <laughs> uh, it's pretty funny. Cause if you saw a video of someone running some like split shorts, 13, 20 is chucking it. It's pretty quick. Um, but yeah, I'm surprised more cyclists don't, uh, add in some running cause it's such a good bang for your buck. Like you just put on your shoes and just an hour of running is a decent compared to cycling is almost a bit of a barrier for me sometimes just because I feel like I need to do more time on it. And it's like, ah, I just don't want to do three hours on the bike today. Like I'd rather just do 45 minutes running. Yeah. Well, and that is the, again, the beauty of running is you can travel with a pair of shoes and some shorts. And I, I do more running in the off season or kind of in, you know, 
September, October, November, because it is so effective. You know, for me, it's like I go to a 5K and that's plenty. That's, you know, 20, 25 minutes. That's plenty of running for me. And I'm ready, hey, to, that's ready where to call it, all it a day. Starts. That's where it all starts. <laughs> so that's pretty funny. Yeah. Well, one day, maybe one day I'll try to do a marathon, but yeah. I'll, uh, I'll stick with the wheels for now. We'll switch. Yeah. Awesome, Jim. Well, I'll, um, I'll let you go and yeah, have a great time up in Colorado camping. That sounds fantastic. And good luck over in, in France and running around Mont Blanc. Thanks so much. Great talking to you, Ian. Thanks, Jim. Well, there we have it, folks. Another episode of Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo. I hope you enjoyed today's show and my conversation with Jim Walmsley. I don't think I'll be partaking in any ultra runs in my near future. And I think that's what makes it all the more impressive with Jim and everyone else in the ultra community, what they're doing and the distances they're covering on foot. I'm quite impressed. And who knows, maybe in the future, I'll look at doing a a 5K run or maybe a 10K, but uh, I'm going to leave it to the experts for the moment, the 100 mile events. So congratulations, Jim. And until next time, folks, stay safe, stay healthy, and I'll catch you back here on Breakfast with Boz being served by Wahoo.